As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. This is a joy. It's a joy always to speak to Claudia Sam. She's founder of Sam Consulting, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and formal Federal Reserve economist. But far more, when you're that young and you come out of Michigan and you're codified with a rule in your name, there's very few people in the economics game that can say that. Claudia, where did the Sam rule come from? Was that a paper you did in your spare time on a trip to Europe and said, I think I'm going to come up with rule. How did the SOM rule get invented? The reason the SOM rule exists is it was part of a policy proposal I had to automatically send out stimulus checks during a recession and to calibrate, you know, how, how much you send out, how often. So it really was a, a sidebar to the pro- policy proposal. It's turned out to be considered relatively useful to people watching recessions, but that was never Right. Point of it. The Heritage of Michigan with Betsy Stevenson and others there with Claudia Sam. The Sam rules now full front and center. Colby Smith writing it up in the FT 10 days ago. How many states are in recession based on the Claudia Sam rule? Right. Well, there's different ways you can calculate it at the state level, but somewhere around 10 or less uh, states are in, in a place where their unemployment rate at the state level has risen more than a half a percentage point. So that's kind of the rule at the national level. We're not calibrated at the state level. And yet I think it's a good exercise to look under the hood and see how various states are doing in terms of their unemployment. And a big one within that group that has you know this higher increase in unemployment is California. And that's a, that's a big state. If you do look at some of these pockets of pain and then you look at the overall aggregate, does it make the overall aggregate look worse or better? Because some of the in, uh, increase that we've seen in unemployment have really been driven by a few pockets of pain. Right. And that's the thing to look at in a state like California. There's been some very specific areas of distress. So you think about the tech sector, which is important to California's economy. And the question now is where we see these pockets of stress, do they spread? Do they resolve themselves kind of locally? And and right now that is that is we can't know that yet. But that's something to be watching. It's that spread that will could eventually push the whole economy into a recession. A lot of people have said that we can't necessarily get a recession and we can't necessarily get unemployment creeping that much higher if you have consumer spending where it is. You say it's not a mystery. So what is this non-mystery telling you in terms of how long it can continue? 
Right. So it's really careful when we look at various numbers to understand who's actually measured and how they're put together. Something like GDP, something like personal consumption expenditures that we look at, that's reflecting mainly a lot of high income individuals who are spending. Whereas when we look at something like the unemployment rate, everybody counts equally. So I think it's where GDP, there's like this tension between consumers keep spending and spending, but that's in a setting where these data tell us a lot more about someone like Elon Musk than they do a Walmart cashier, right? So we have to be a little careful how the data are constructed. And I think that's why the unemployment rate, which is a much more egalitarian measure of what's going on, that, that's a good way to look. And that looks strong, too. Uh, Claudia, I'm so glad you brought up California. I wasn't aware of this, folks. I mean, I know California is ginormous, and I thought at least it was maybe the sixth or seventh uh, global economy. If you take it by itself, I'm wrong. It's the fourth. It's the United States, folks, China, Japan, and then the fourth economy would be California taken by itself. I mean, I, th I think the financial media and, frankly, much of economics, Claudia, gets us totally wrong. They're, they're these dominant states that are all Florida, California, maybe New York, and I'll let you decide the others, Texas, clearly. But are those three states not in recession while others struggle? Is, is there something to size in America that gives us a better stability? It's really a mixed bag at this point. Again, we're trying to figure out, is is the weakness contained or has it started spreading? California is the biggest one that's up in a, it's, it's unemployment rates. Unemployment rates have risen notably. I look, Claudia, at the Fed meeting. Let's turn to that if we could and the, and the shock and all of it. We had two major economists say, okay, well, then why didn't they just raise rates? Were you surprised that after the verbiage, they just didn't raise rates in an Arthur Burns kind of way? I was, though I'll give them credit. This is the most hawkish pause I could have imagined, right, going out and saying we're going to have two more rate increases that's likely. Now, likely just means that people are putting 50% or greater odds on needing to raise rates. So it's not necessarily a done deal. I'm sure there was a robust debate at this meeting about what the policy change should be. But wow, that really, that uh, summary of economic projections really, you know, nailed it home. We're going to raise, and it should have been a really clear signal, forget about the chance of cutting this it, year. It wasn't, Claudia. And what you hear is, yes, perhaps people aren't necessarily pricing in rate cuts. But as we heard from Ben Laidler, people are fighting the Fed. They continue to disbelieve that they're going to raise rates once, even twice, uh, especially not twice more uh, this year, and that they're probably done for the cycle. Stuart Kaiser saying that this is one of the biggest risks to the melt-up that he sees continuing, all things being equal. What's your problem? probability that you assigned to the Fed being able to go once or twice more based on what you were just saying. Unemployment, probably the best gauge of how strong the economy is, and it still is pretty good. Right. But that's all the more reason in the Fed's eyes to raise rates. Right. And, and inflation has proved sticky. Right. I mean, they signaled July could be it's a live meeting. We could raise again. Then they have a month of data between now and the July meeting. Like, what are they really going to learn that they didn't know already? So I, I take them at their word for at least that first increase. Uh, but again, this has got to be hanging on a knife's edge because otherwise just raise rates. Like, what are they waiting for if they think that's necessary? I still think that they're going to keep on to the holding the rates high. And inflation is just too high for them to be that comfortable to cut. 
Which is one reason why people are really curious to hear what Jay Powell has to say. He's heading to Capitol Hill Wednesday, tomorrow, and Thursday, mm -hmm. and he's going to be testifying for his uh, first time since the banking crisis kind of arose. How much do you expect him to double down and to say, you know what? You guys are getting it wrong. We're going to raise rates further. You can't just rally into strength and expect us to do nothing. Right. And I think, you know, reading the monetary policy report that goes along with, you know, when he testifies, it certainly has that flavor. You know, there, there are boxes on how we think about the um, the what's happened in the banking sector. They still are very, I mean, they're lined. This is very isolated. This doesn't have anything to do with interest rate policy. I mean, I think you can see in that report the same, emphasizing these same points. So like you said, doubling down on what he's already said. And I don't think... I mean, he's not going to want to go far from that script because they really did want this to be hawkish. Claudia, one final question. What's our history of guessing or gaming or judging the trend and the second derivative of disinflation? Do we get that right ever? Rarely. I mean, and, and there it's if you go at the historical record, I mean, within you know a reasonable amount of time facing this disinflationary cycle, how to do enough, how not to do enough. Because again, this is not Volcker Fed that walked in and said, we want this and we want it now. So there, there isn't much to compare it to. I mean, frankly, the Fed's forecast, especially in the out years, it's like, wow, that's pretty optimistic. And yet they could pull this off. I mean, there's still signs of it, but I think they're going to be very cautious in stepping back, even as inflation starts to fall. I mean, it's really, really, it's, it's, it's really, really important here. And I guess it comes down to the disinflation trend and in housing. We get housing data today. Pantheon folks, and this was a wonderful article over the weekend, they, they were just blistering that the housing confidence and housing certitude, Claudia Sam, is, is just wrong. Harsh language. They said housing in America, the hope of it is divorced from reality. Have we become too complacent? about the ramifications in real estate of these high interest rates, waiting and hoping for that disinflation? Right. Well, I mean, housing is one of the primary sectors that the Fed should be working through to get to the real economy. I mean, that's one of the most interest rate sensitive sectors. Uh, and, and it's been, I mean, we've seen initially a lot of optimism pulled out and now maybe more back into the market. And as with all of these pieces, the Fed cannot move the economy on a dime, right? There's there's a lot of going on in the pieces, but that's a primary transmission mechanism into the rest of the economy. Claudia, thank you so much, and congratulations on the amount of work we see on the SOM rule uh, yeah. out there in this uh, third quarter now. Third quarter? Almost, sec almost third quarter of 2023. <laughs> Claudia SOM of SOM uh, Research. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. 
Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. In the equity space, we've really focused on this this morning because we've listened to you on radio and television, and you want to know equity opinion around equities, bonds, currencies, commodities. Mr. Cronert is equity strategist and managing director at Citigroup. We're thrilled he could join us this morning. Scott Cronert, what a strange time. I want you to describe right now how you address in writing fear of missing out. Where is that in an equity strategy right now? Well, where it is right now is is in the performance gains you've seen in this tech growth component of large cap equities. And it's also <laughs> increasingly showing up in a lot of our positioning data. Um, so over the weekend, our quant colleagues pointed out that looking at futures positioning, it's about as bullish as you've seen since the global financial crisis. So so there certainly has been a, a crowding in effect um, underway as this NASDAQ led rally has really kicked in. I am, my head is spinning because I'll see on a given day, the bet is negative, the bet is caution, the bet is woe is me, we're all going to die, we're, the bull market's going to end. And then you just said the bet is actually that people are very bullish. You can't have it both ways. Which is it? Well, the starting point is is the fear that was kicking in last year as the Fed peak hawkishness was kicking in, <coughs> and we were really concerned about recession risk. And so- you went into this year with a, probably a little bit more concerned positioning um, related to uh, this mega cap growth cohort, which felt the impact of the mar- of the multiple compression last year. Heck, we're using this 4,000 target that we can get to. We the same target we used start of the year. Start of the year, we were we looked bullish versus the futures implied positioning. Mid year, we're hanging on to this target. Now we're looking bearish. So, you know, there has been a, a pretty good seesaw at work here. I think the point we're making is, is that what comes with this price action is an implicit expectation around fundamental follow through. And our concern, quite simply, is in the shorter term um, for all of the AI euphoria kicking in, the higher you go now, the higher the implicit expectations you set up for. And that just sets a pretty high bar going into the Q2 reporting period. So you think that this is going to be an earnings-led decline because we're going to see some sort of decline to get down to your target of 4000 before going up to where you see it eventually ending up, which is around where we are right now. So is that really going to be the catalyst, big tech earnings reports that disappoint? I think we're going to find across the board. I mean, every company in the country better have an AI strategy that they're talking about as you go into Q2. A reporting period. The issue is going to be to what degree does that show up in fundamentals? And it wasn't that long ago that we were thinking AI was sort of a 25 event. It's been pulled forward, um, courtesy of some of the big tech names of of late. I just think that what we're going to run into is this disconnect with how hard the market is run 
versus where earnings expectations are. We started the year 213 for uh, 2023 earnings. We're up to 215 now. Um, and so we, our, our call around earnings resilience has been very solid here. It's just a question of to what degree a lot of expectations are being priced in perhaps too quickly. So you think that people who think the Fed is going to be the killer of this rally are overstating things, that there's going to be some sort of additional rate hike or two, and perhaps stick your inflation that could really undermine some of the valuations that have gotten baked in here. Do you dismiss that? I, well, I think that's a part, of the, a part of the equation, right? So we're kind of coming at it more fundamentally based. But to your point, Lisa, I mean, you're still looking at an at a Fed that is going to need to see a little bit um, stronger deceleration in inflation metrics to feel comfortable changing tune. Again, here, City, the House view is another one or two hikes. Um, and we're looking at a Fed funds futures curve that is quickly right sized over the past couple of months and is now pretty comfortable. You're looking at a 5% uh, Fed funds level into the end of the year. So um, every step we go in terms of nudging up targets for the S&P, you still have to compare that to the uh, return on cash. It's a pretty interesting trade-off that investors are facing right now on this. But there's no doubt in our mind that um, a higher for longer Fed, higher than expected uh, versus two months ago, the, the interest, interest rate backdrop, all of this plays into um, a, 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 an earning, uh, sorry, an interest rate tailwind that does keep somewhat of a, of a lid on where valuations can go. Where's the lid on valuations three years out, five years out? I'm not talking about buy and hold, Scott Kreiner, but you've been doing this long enough to know the percentage of money that's in the game for what for the financial media is long, long term, like 36 months. How yeah. do you scope 36 months given all the angst that's out there? So it's not easy to do, Tom, clearly. So the way we've kind of come at it, heck, a, a year or so ago, we were saying, hey, geopolitical risk premium is going to knock a couple multiple turns off the S&P. Now we're looking at this disconnect with how you're, you're going to value growth versus cyclicals and defenses within the market. The way we're thinking about it is that um, what's happening under the surface, um, and this is going to be a direct AI and an indirect AI influence, the opportunity for productivity improvement across the S&P 500 and broader equity um, economic landscape here in the U.S., we think is going to get really interesting here. So longer term, we're pretty comfortable the market can hold a higher valuation, courtesy of mega cap growth and tech, but also because the rest of the market is going to prove out that it's less cyclical than historically perceived. And I think AI, in addition to other forms of technology that have aided and embedded productivity improvements, end up underscoring a higher valuation than many investors have gotten comfortable with. So from our view, this is all timing. We think we've run pretty hard. We need to digest the move. But the setup here as we navigate this recession risk in the second half of this right. year is, for, is higher for longer coming out the other side. Scott Croner, thank you so much for the brief with Citigroup. If you're a retail investor and you're a yield hog, you're looking at a 20-year duration, 30-year muni bond, whatever it may be, to grab that yield. And you have been absolutely slammed over the last 24 uh, months of Bloomberg total return index down anywhere from 13 to 15 to 17%, an end of the great bond party. 
Megan Swiber is extremely acute at this with Georgetown Finance and Mathematics, Director of U.S. Rate Strategy at Bank of America as well. I'm going to start with a basic retail question. It was up, up, and away for 10 years, 15 years, whatever. We got absolutely slammed, price down, let's say 15% to be kind. We've come back a little bit. Now what? Yeah, Tom, I think this is really the question on everyone's minds right now. You know, you have yields at relatively attractive levels, but is now the time to be buying? And what what history tells us is that you really need to wait until that final Fed hike of the cycle to feel more comfortable and confident going long duration at this point. And what we see from investors, the survey that we conducted at B of A, one of them, is this Global FX and Rate Sentiment Survey, which is a really cool survey um, of global benchmark investors, has a pretty long history, two decades or so. And that mm-hmm. tells us that right now, investors have more confidence being long U.S. duration than they have really at any point in time during that survey. Give history, us a maturity time on this. I mean, let's, let's frame this out. The Fed is at the two-year space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The belly of the curve is five to seven years. Long duration, does that click in at 10 years or is it a different maturity? I mean, you can think of it across the curve. Really what you see, though, and, and what, what we've been guiding investors towards is is when you're talking about long duration, you're talking further out the curve, 10-year, 30-year rates. Mm-hmm. And those are more limited in terms of how much they can increase on the back of the Fed continuing to hike um, versus the, fr- the front end of the curve, right. which will be pulled <clears throat> higher with the Fed delivering more rate hikes likely. I, I the, the problem I have with this is everybody likes to talk spread market and all these other professional distractions. I get it. Everybody read Fabozzi. I'm dazzled. Forget about it. The fact is bonds went down 15% mm-hmm. just as a round number. 100 became par became 85. That's all there is to it. We've come back a little bit to 87, 88, 90, whatever that number is. Are you as a bond investor investing for total return or someone somewhere out there you get back to what we remember, or is this the new level we're dealing with? I mean, to me, Tom, the answer to that question comes down to the inflation outlook. And right now, if you look at market price and kind of following up on the prior segment here, the market has a lot of confidence that that the Fed's going to be able to see inflation <clears throat> back down to 2% in a year. And if indeed that is the trajectory, then you then are you get probably price going up, to yield see down. exactly. Yeah. You're, you're you're going to be able to see the Fed cut alongside that. But the other, the other thing you say in your research note is issuance, and this is where all my radars oh, yeah. up. Lisa mm-hmm. and I talk about yes, this yes. all the time. What are CFOs going to do in this milieu? I mean, to me, you know, the, there's going to be the big guys call up, they make four phone calls, including the Bank of America. And they sell a gazillion bonds, but is a total, what will CFOs do on issuance? Yeah, I think that that is another important question here. And on the back of this repositioning that we've seen from investors more broadly, what you have Treasury doing now that we're beyond the debt limit is Mm -hmm. increasing issuance. This first wave is going to be in bills, pretty easily absorbed, because if you look at the Fed's overnight reverse repo facility, you got a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines that can go out and buy that. But the question here, right, is this longer duration stuff, 10 years and out. Um, who are the marginal buyers of that going to be? And I think at the end of the day, that's another risk to this very consensus view in the market that we currently see, which is wanting to be long duration at these but levels. But the consensus view, if I was to frame this as simply as we can, you're going to look out to 10 years, which seems forever away, 2033, 2034. You're going to buy it and you're going to clip the coupon 
if the price goes down, you've still got the coupon to carry to help you. But the hope and prayer of the market now, the consensus is price up along with that to a really pretty significant total return, right? That's exactly right. And again, <clears throat> you know, if the Fed is able to see the inflation levels that the market expects at this point, it makes sense for, for the Fed to get towards a more neutral policy rate setting, call it two and a half, three percent, which means that you're going to have downward pressure on those yields at the back end. But really, the challenging thing and the risky thing for investors is, is stickier inflation. And currently, the Fed really doesn't have a lot of confidence <clears throat> in their forecasts. Mm -hmm. um, we don't think that they're going to stop hiking until they see core CPI come in closer to two tenths, one tenth of a percent. Right. We're at four tenths. So, in, what's your ten-year call, year-end, or one-year up? Whichever way you frame that. A bit yeah. So, year-end we have three fifty, so a bit lower than the levels that we're currently sitting at. Um, and that is really due in part to the fact that we're going to be beyond the Fed's final rate hike of the cycle. Um, and you're going to have more conviction on what the inflation outlook will, will be. Mm -hmm. But in general, we're not expecting this very massive fall in rates. It's, right. it's, it's looking near term like you're pretty much going to be sitting in this range between 325, 375. I don't know if you get into portfolio construction. i got like eight ways to go here, folks, with Megan Swiber. <laughs> but the answer here is it's real simple. Do you single point? Do you barbell or do you ladder out maturities if you're scared stiff of the stock market? Yeah, and that's that's the that's in, that's the important point here too. Rates, duration, and portfolios is the world's risk-off asset. And if you have more of this pressure here on the equity market, you're more inclined to see um, rates be that buffer, be that hedge. A key point here, though, is whether or not we're going to see this recession that many economists were calling for at the at the start of the year. That's worked the data has been so resilient, right? The U.S. economy is just a lot more resilient than what the Fed, what economists more broadly were, were ultimately giving it credit for, which limits how much you can really see um, the equity market fall and, and rates fall alongside it. I got to go out to the long-term space. It's great when you see Apple Computer put out a 30-year piece or whatever and you know it's sold in two seconds is is well what what is the plus minus of long long duration full faith and credit right now yeah you know i think you have to be a little bit more humble about how far rates can fall the fed when they were implementing the flexible average inflation targeting strategy. A big part of that, right, was being able to see nominal rates move higher, be able to build in some buffer when they're cutting. So I think that the probability that the Fed cuts down to, to the zero lower bound is more limited here. You probably have to think that that the in, in a Fed cutting cycle, when we're in more of this mild recession, is closer to two and a half percent than it is falling all the way back down to zero. I mean, I'm looking here and, you know, it's amazing how this is the trap, folks. You got to be careful here. As many of you know, I bought the 100-year Austria. It's like now a 97. I'm down 70% in that piece right now. In the, in the, it's off. It's on the mat. I mean, even with some of the constructive things of Europe or whatever, the Austrian 97-year piece is still. It hasn't come up. It has that's the trap you're talking about on a, on a less you know uh, inflammatory basis. 
Exactly. And I mean, I think near term, you have more potential for the front end to be more volatile, move higher with the Fed continuing to hike. You see the market only pricing about another 25 basis point hike mm -hmm. over the next several months. If they deliver on two more, which is our base case call, you're going to see more upward pressure on, on the front end of the curve. Um, so we think that investors who've really been positioned for the end of the hiking cycle, which is curve steepeners, long duration, right. you need to be careful here. And I think a good way to hedge this um, is to push back on what the market's pricing. Oh, no, stop. For the way to hedge it is to buy Nvidia, right? <laughs> yeah, I can't you, comment on that. You, oh, she's got <laughs> Megan Swiber. Thank you for compliance for Bank of America. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Sometimes I miss it. And very often there can be a book of the summer or the book of the year, and it just, for whatever reason, in the Tom Keen blur, I blow it. I blew it with Sebastian Page's phenomenal Beyond Diversification. I'm going to give him the highest regard on this. This is the most important adult Wall Street book since Richard Bernstein's classic volume on value and growth. I can't say enough about it. Every time I look at it, I'm blown away by the acuity. Joining us this morning, the author of Beyond Diversification, Sebastian Page, a shingles out at T. Rowe Price. Sebastian, I'm going to get right to it. You talk about quack remedies. What's the quackness of asset allocation in 2023? Tom, it's, we're going through a regime shift in asset allocation. You know, this is a critical time in capital markets history, in my mind. After 40 years of declining rates, we've finally made a higher high in rates. And we've wiped out 17 trillion in negative yielding debt. This begs the question, what do we do with asset allocation? Both tactically, how we navigate this regime shift, and that's been very confusing. But also structurally, the 60-40, you often ask that question on your show. I think the 60-40 <coughs> needs to be modernized. I think of the 40, uh, we should add maybe 15 to 20% in different alternatives. 
and look for equity protection strategies. And so rethink diversification. This is a critical time for doing this, Tom. This is really important, and folks, this is with the sharp ratio, with the risk-free rate finally back to normal, and the Sebastian Page religion is, you know what, folks, that was a nice 15-year gift, we're back to normal. We can't go out and find private equity. We're not Blackstone, we're not KKR, et cetera, Sebastian Page. How do our listeners and viewers participate in the Sebastian Page 50, 15, whatever the rest is, an alternative? You know, liquid alternatives are interesting if you know how to select them. It really matters how you define liquid alternatives. But investment strategies that focus on relative value that have less of the traditional market exposure are also available in liquid forms. But it also calls for rethinking how you navigate markets tactically, how you protect for the downside. In a nutshell, Tom, the big question for the 60-40 is what is the role of duration or treasuries when we get interest rate shocks? Now, to be clear, we just had a 500 basis points shock from the Fed. We're not getting another one. In fact, we've been adding duration back into our portfolios. But it's a critical question if you look out five, 10 years, what is going to be the volatility of interest rates? What is going to be the volatility of inflation? And how do you position your portfolio for those types of regimes? And this calls for things like hedged equity strategies. It calls for things like real asset equity strategies, you know, stocks that we kind of didn't really like for the, for the last 10 years pre-pandemic, right, when inflation was below 2%, but energy companies, uh, real estate investment trusts, um, metals and mining, precious metals, and so on, strategies that have a levered response to inflation shocks. This is all part of the new regime for the next fi five to 10 years. Well, how much is this regime changing in real time? There was a time, perhaps, I don't know, five months ago when people thought that tech stocks were the most interest rate sensitive, and yet we've seen yields rise and tech rally in tandem. Is that connection also broken? Is that diversification in these two areas perhaps different than it was just five months ago? Yeah, look, in the short run, say, I think six to 12 months, we're navigating treacherous waters. I think the narrative around growth stocks has been driven by different factors. Lisa, yes, this correlation seems to have broken a little bit, but there's also an underlying narrative of, yeah, okay, we're pretty close to peak rates. Those big tech companies have shown that they're focused on efficiency. And then, of course, you know, you see positive surprises on cloud revenues, positive surprises on digital advertising, and then you hit sort of a, another kind of regime shift in AI. And that's really been part of the story, and you've covered it at length in your show. But, you know, AI's been around for a long time. It just seems like the large language models in the chat GPT are kind of yet another regime shift we're going through. And that's all part of the value versus growth equation. Lisa, we went back to neutral in our portfolios. We were long value all of last year and we benefited from that. Now we're basically back to neutral between growth and value. We don't want to be underweight if the AI bubble, quote unquote, if you will, is kind mm. of like 1998, well, right? So we'd rather be at neutral okay. right now. Sebastian Page, thank you so much for joining us today with T. Rowe Price uh, there. I can't say enough, particularly for pros, about beyond diversification, hugely, hugely uh, thought-provoking. 
the Secretary of State in Beijing getting off the airplane, sort of like the way Terry Haynes gets off the airplane at Reagan here, back when he's coming in from Dallas DFW. He's founder of Pangea Policy and joins us this morning. Terry, just, you know, the, the, the basic idea of the shock of the Secretary of State of the United States at any country being shown or greeted to the country like he's coming out of Reagan. You know what it's like. you got to get from <laughs> gate 10 over to gate 3 quickly and your luggage is on the, uh, the, the way. What was accomplished? And uh, those that Reagan know, uh, the, the infamous gate 35X, and that was kind of what it was there, too. Um, what was accomplished was the ability of both countries to say that they are continuing to communicate uh, that, uh, that that is calculated by both sides as having the effect of uh, diminishing tension somewhat. Uh, I argued before the meeting and would still argue that that's uh, largely illusory. Uh, you know, my takeaways really are simply that uh, China sees the United States business community as, uh, you know, as its friend uh, geopolitically and uh, will continue to uh, try to push that relationship, uh, that, the United, that China also is pushing the United States to what they call recalibrate its, uh, its relationship uh, in Asia. In other words, kind of back off and, uh, and, and uh, agree that uh, Asia should be a Chinese lake entirely, which is uh, uh, an absurd proposition to, to the many countries uh, the, who are our allies there. Uh, thirdly, there's no military communications. And fourthly, there's, uh, there's no mention of Ukraine or Iran, for that matter. So uh, we've got communication, uh, but we don't have a lot of communication. And we certainly on either yeah. side don't have anything to show. Terry, this is the political tension right now. Perhaps it was a win for President Biden in terms of not escalating any tensions further, creating some sort of open lines of communication. Was it a win when it comes to the politics domestically of a nation very much growing hawkish on China and some with some calling for some sort of decoupling, which this president has pushed back against? Well, you know, I, I agree that uh, normalization of communications is a win for President Biden regardless. Uh, I think that's very true. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, we don't get much more than that. Uh, you know, the, not much has been uh, gotten. Secondly, uh, you know, my contention would be that uh, the United States policy towards China uh, actually started to flip uh, in, say, 2016, 2017, even before Trump became president. Uh, and it is among the most bipartisan and probably the most bipartisan policy area that we've got in Washington. Uh, so that's not going to change either. Uh, you know, the vast majority of Washington wants communication with China. Uh, the vast majority of Washington also uh, does not want a situation where we're, uh, where we're either getting rid of our, our of our own geopolitical interests or uh, or putting our allies in more peril uh, as a result of that. One of the and lines we we're yeah. not doing that right now. So. One, one of the lines from Tony Blinken's press conference after the meeting really stuck out, at least in a lot of the talk shows over the weekend and yesterday. He said we remain committed to our one China policy with the three communiques, the Taiwan Relation Acts, the six assurances. We do not support Taiwan's independence. We've made it clear that we oppose any unilateral Lateral change, uh, changes to the status quo by either side. Is that controversial, Terry? And how is it being sort of spun the day after? Well, it shouldn't be controversial because what uh, Secretary Blinken is doing there 
is really underscoring that United States policy since 1979 in the Taiwan Relations Act remains the policy of the United States government. And there's been a lot of uh, concern, a lot of uh, understanding and misunderstanding around that uh, over the past few years uh, that, frankly, have been uh, aided and abetted by both President Trump and President Biden in past statements. So, you know, what Biden's try, or excuse me, what Blinken's trying to do is put a floor under that uh, by saying, "Look, our policy is as it was, as it was, and it continues to be. Make no mistake mm. about that. Uh, clarity is good." And Jerry, I want to link this to our economics and our corporate relationships with China. Catherine Mann is at the Bank of England. She's one of the great American international economists. And Kathy Mann of MIT and, and Brandeis makes very clear that we have a codependency with China. We need them economically. economically. They need us. She owns the high ground on the Trans-Pacific codependency. What is the relationship in these discussions in your Washington? when they observe Tim Cook living that codependency at Apple and bipartisan presidents saying, no, we don't want to do that. How's that work? Well, they and you know the vast majority of Washington understands uh, the codependency. Uh, you know, frankly, doesn't want to uh, upset it. Uh, I find the uh, I find the whole uh, the war of rhetoric here, whether it's decoupling or de-risking or anything else, uh, to be a little overblown on the street. Uh, you know, nobody's talking about removing Americans uh, or American business from China. Uh, what China is trying to do at the same is simultaneously, though, is trying to attract uh, and continue to have in American business and American investment, while at the same time uh, making the uh, the terms under which uh, non-China investment will exist to be more onerous than it already has been. Uh, yeah, it, but I, I don't see the United States as trying to take that away. Terry Haynes, thank you so much with Pangea Policy. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.